Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Hi, good uh, good day. You're with Give the People What They Want. This is the 119th show. Happy to be with you. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We've got Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch coming to you every week on Friday, bringing you the news of the world. Interesting week this has been, given the meeting in Moscow, the personal meeting between China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin. Now, two meetings were actually held. The first on Monday started around 4.30 in the afternoon um, in uh, Moscow time and ended after 9 p.m. It was a very long meeting, about four plus hours of conversation between Xi Jinping and Putin, a private meeting. Both of them left pretty happy, it seemed. The next day, uh, there was a much longer meeting with all the other officials involved where they came up and reinforced their great uh, statement that they had made earlier, the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership of Coordination for the New Era. Very long name for the statement. They effectively uh, called this the deepening of that. So that was the second day of the long meeting. It's important to sit back and take stock of what this means. Uh, firstly, it's important that Xi Jinping went personally to meet with Vladimir Putin. Um, they didn't do a Zoom meeting. Uh, they didn't send a the foreign minister again. Previously, Wang Yi, who's the highest party member of foreign affairs, had gone to Moscow. This time, Xi Jinping went personally. There was no other reason to have gone. There was no St. Petersburg Forum to attend. There was no other uh, grand event or declaration. He went to have a long meeting with Mr. Putin. Now, on the second day, there were a laundry list of items released. Of course, in all these sorts of meetings, that's precisely what uh, happens. There was a discussion about what is democracy. Uh, in that light, they discussed the Chinese concept of the Global Civilization Initiative, which the Chinese have put on the table, trying to understand that different parts of the planet are moving towards their own kinds of democratization. There is no, as they said, superior form of democracy. They talked about Taiwan. The idea uh, of one China was very much on the table. They talked about color revolutions, about the East Turkestan Islamic movement that operates um, you know, inside Western China. Uh, in fact, actually, the leadership of that group is in Idlib, Syria. But the group has uh, had operations in Western China. They talked about cross-border protection. They talked about the Global Development Initiative. They talked about Nord Stream 2. They talked about AUKUS. They talked about everything on the second day. It was, as I said, a laundry list. But it's pretty clear that on the previous day, that four-and-a-half-hour meeting between Xi Jinping and Putin, what was on the table, and let's be clear about that, was the war in Ukraine. That was what was the principal focus of discussion by all accounts that have come out from that meeting. Now, the Chinese, prior to this meeting and, and around the time of the Munich Security Initiative, the Chinese had publicly released what they call the 12 principles, in fact, towards a peace plan. Very interesting set of principles that we and give the people what they want have talked about previously. Um, these are principles that include uh, a safer ways to conduct the, the op military operation. For instance, 
uh, no fighting near nuclear power plants. But they also, of course, include uh, platforms or procedures for a dial back of the violence and indeed of uh, bringing peace to the region. It's an important uh, set of 12 principles. Likely, Mr. Putin and Xi Jinping talked about what would be the possibilities of a peace agreement. That peace agreement placed on the table by the Chinese has been spoken favorably across uh, much of the global south. No doubt that people have looked at this with relief, that perhaps if the Chinese can broker some kind of peace agreement, then perhaps some of that cost of living pressure might abate. That's what's on people's mind. United States categorically rejected this agreement. Much of the media in the West has been saying things like, well, it's short on details. Of course, it's short on details. It's a platform or set of principles for the negotiation. It's not doing the negotiation for the Ukrainians and the Russians. That would be to impose a deal on them. It's in fact creating the table or setting the table. When Mr. Xi Jinping left Moscow, it was clear that he left with a big smile on his face. It's anticipated that if the, um, the fighting around Bakhmut finally comes to a complete end, if the Russians feel that there is a sufficient uh, ground uh, understanding from their perspective, maybe this will allow space for them to open up a new dialogue with the Ukrainians. Uh, let's see what happens. Hard to tell up to now. Um, it's interesting that at the meeting, not much publicly was said about the climate and the environment. They did talk about the Japanese government and it's uh, restarting Fukushima Daiichi, the uh, nuclear power plant, worry about polluting the waters around Japan. But Prashant, while they were talking in Moscow, it looks like the climate scientists had other fish to fry. Right. Uh, the IPCC synthesis report is out. And uh, of course, uh, we've uh, reports, uh, these, there have been a lot of reports in recent times, both by the IPCC, by others, climate change, far more on our radar uh, these days. But this is an interesting report because it's probably the last of its kind till maybe the end of the decade. So I think the next major report we're going to see on these lines will be by 2030. Uh, it is likely that the world will be a very, very different place uh, by then. So that so this report is kind of significant. That way it summarizes quite a few earlier reports, you know, brings into stark detail some of the conclusions of the earlier report. And the uh, report, of course, is depressingly familiar in the sense that what it talks about, uh, the, the fact that, you know, as we have said time and again on the show, climate change is already here. It's not, you know, some distant ghost or some distant uh, aspect that's going to be around. It's very much here. The impact is already being seen by tens of thousands of people across the world. And, uh, you know, uh, temperatures have increased from by around 1.1 degrees uh, from 2011 to 20. That is from the pre-18, the pre-industrial pre levels, that is. But I think the key aspect of the report we need to focus on and is, is basically to look at how, uh, you know, the inequality that has always been very central to the issue of climate change. And this report also kind of mentions that, which is basically the fact that the, you know, the bottom 50% of households contribute just 13 to 15% of greenhouse gas emissions, whereas the top 10% contribute 34 to 45%. And this kind of automatically shows, you know, at a global level, the kind of inequality and who's really contributing to climate change. And of course, the same thing happens with the global north and the global south as well. There's a legacy of contributing to climate change, which countries of the global north have been part of. And, you know, uh, although these facts are very well known, I think 
what each time a report like this comes out, what also is apparent is the fact that there has been no real political will uh, from the countries of the global north, especially in addressing what these reports say time and again, which is the fact that, you know, there has to be there has to be a moment of reckoning at some point of time, right, where concrete steps are taken to sort of deal with uh, the issue that is very much there. Whereas the solutions, as this report chronicles, seem to be largely, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of rhetoric, very little money that's put on the table. That's one of the main questions that was there. A hundred billion a year was supposed to be provided by the rich countries. It never came. Now there's talk of a loss and mitigation fund, but the details are not there by the time the fund is operational. Again, you're going to see more of these irreversible impacts, sort of, uh, you know, people actually facing this kind of impact. So all this together, uh, quite a depressing report that way. And I think the other key aspect is the fact that, the, you know, fossil fuel industries continue to benefit. Uh, you know, there's a lot of money still going into fossil fuel exploration. With the Ukraine war, many of the global north countries now going back into that mode. So uh, there's a new COP coming this year, maybe every year from now. But I think, again, time and again, it, we are going to end up in this situation where there's clearly no roadmap that is given. And point is that the left has given, you know, across the world, the left has given clear roadmaps. We need to reduce inequality. The global, the, you know, the rich across the globe, especially in the north, global north, need to sort of start looking at their consumption patterns. We need to look at the, you know, why billionaires exist to such an extent. We need to address the issue of global debt without which any kind of uh, mitigation activity or any kind of adaptation activity for climate change is not going to work sustainably. The financing that is being provided for climate change should not be in the form of more loans. We need to move out of that mentality as well. It should not be in the form of insurance and stuff like that. There has to be far quicker mechanisms. All these, I think, uh, the global left, of course, but even a number of countries who are being affected have raised this time and again, but there is no, you know, there has been no global move towards it. So I think this report, yet another moment to sort of take stock of some of these issues. I mean, if it took stock of these issues properly, then the global media would report them uh, adequately. It seems that there's not enough serious focus on this. Uh, Zoe, you're in Argentina, for instance. Let's talk about not enough serious focus. Argentina's inflation has gone up to 100%. Over the last couple of days, they reported 100% inflation in Argentina. The government is forcing uh, public sector companies to sell dollar-denominated bonds back into the private sector. I'll guarantee you this is going to really send so-called international capital markets to quote a former Argentinian finance minister, Martin Guzman. It's going to send them. It's going to spook them. Let's see what happens. You're in Argentina Lots of anniversaries up. What's going on with that attempted coup and the political chaos in the country? Well, uh, perhaps you'll be able to hear at some point uh, the marching that's happening. The, uh, today is the anniversary of the coup d'etat against uh, the democratically elected government in uh, 1976, uh, which essentially inaugurated the last civic and military dictatorship in Argentina. It's one of the most well-known dictatorships. Um, wherein uh, over 30,000 people were detained and disappeared. There was a brutal, brutal persecution of the left during this during this six-year period um, that it was in power. Um, has left really a mark on the continent. Um, the dictatorship in Argentina is something that uh, people from across Latin America um, and even the world really remember as such a horrible 
horrible stain on uh, the history of democracy in the region. And of course, it happened at the same time as many other coups across the region. Um, and that being said, uh, this year is celebrating 40 years since the return and the establishment of democracy in the country. And this, of course, means uh, when the dictatorship ended and free and fair elections uh, were held and people's democratic rights were restored. Um, so this year is, is a pretty mo monumentous anniversary. Um, as you said, it's happening amid a very, very, very difficult time for Argentina. Um, Frente de Todos, which is the progressive coalition, won the elections in 2019, um, but they inherited a country that had been destroyed by neoliberalism, um, a country that had a sordid history with uh, the IMF and had decided to take out yet another loan under Mauricio Macri and left movements have harshly criticized um, the way in which this loan was handled, have alleged that there was illegal dealings um, with this loan, that a lot of the money was actually taken out of the country, not even used to invest in social programs. Um, and in this context, as you said, there's 100% inflation, there's been constant turnover within the government, new finance ministers every, you know, every other month, it seemed. Um, and now, of course, one of the major <clears throat> political issues is also about um, the lawfare campaign against Cristina uh, Fernandez de Kirchner. Um, so while this celebration of 40 years of democracy is happening, we're also seeing that in other ways, institutions like the IMF, um, like the judiciary, like the private controlled, corporate controlled media in the country are really eroding at this democracy because <clears throat> while people have the right to vote, uh, they don't have the right to say, for example, control inflation or say whether or not the country should be using its own resources to pay back what many allege is an illegal debt with the IMF. Um, they don't have the right to say, for example, that the judiciary should not persecute uh, Cristina Fernandez, who's one of the most popular leaders in the country. She's being investigated on a slew of different uh, corruption-related charges. Um, she herself and her team have revealed kind of the networks behind these charges, uh, the collusion between the judges and the prosecutors who have links to former President Macri. These are, these are charges that are in many ways baseless and have clear political motivation. She's continued to condemn uh, the case against her. They've also tried to um, take her out of the running for the next upcoming elections. She said this week in a speech that she would attempt to be running, that she gave hints of this, um, that she would try to defy this political ban. So it's a really interesting moment. We see the, you know, celebrating the return of democracy, but in very, very, very challenging circumstances. Vijay, mute. It's going to be a tough go for Argentina, largely because of the economic challenges that the country is going to face. Uh, who knows what's going to happen uh, when the next coupon is due uh, at the international bond market, particularly if they're going to be selling dollar-denominated bonds. Let's see what's going to happen. You're listening to Give the People What They Want. Coming to you from People's Dispatch, that's Zoe Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Looking at all things around the world, trying to sniff our way to the real stories. Here's another one. World Water Day, yes, held annually, true. Interesting speeches, uh, always something interesting from the government of Bolivia when it comes to the climate or the environment. Uh, once again here, an interesting speech by uh, President Arce. But Prashant, what have you been following 
regarding World Water Day. Right. Uh, for us, the World Water Day courtesy, an excellent article by Dr. Nafiz Faisi as well as some of our work really has been on the issue of cholera. And it's something we've been tracking for a while. Uh, and it's kind of shocking, actually, because uh, the headline of that article is quite interesting because it talks about no cool helicopters to save those at risk for cholera. And the reason for that headline is because uh, of how the world addresses the question of cholera. Whenever there's a natural disaster, of course, there's a lot of immediate aid that comes in, rescue helicopters, for instance. But the fact is that the number of people who are dying of cholera is so under the radar that there are you know, no massive rescue attempts. And it's appalling the fact that in the year 2023, we are actually in a situation where the, there's been a resurgence of cholera, which is actually a very easily preventable disease, which, you know, all it requires, what it mainly requires is a proper sanitation system, a good you know, deliver, delivery of drinking water, for instance. But as in 2021, we saw that 23 countries had reported cholera outbreaks, which itself was high compared to the 90s. And in 2023, that number is at 29. So something as basic as cholera, which we were dealing with 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we have the technology, we have you know the resources to deal with it. We are still uh, struggling with it across the world. The mortality rate is at 1.9%, which is way above what uh, you know what is acceptable according to experts, which is that you know even there, say one percent is considered acceptable. That you know it's okay, so to speak. But even that's bad, of course. But one point nine percent is where we are at, and it's no surprise where these uh, cholera outbreaks are taking place. They're taking place in Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan, uh, parts of Pakistan, Kenya, Haiti, uh, you know Malawi, for instance, in the DRC. All of these countries which have been targets of which are which are facing conflicts, which have been targets of intervention by imperialist powers, for instance, each of these countries, their health systems completely wrecked, completely destroyed by conflict and health, not just health, but basic infrastructure completely destroyed by conflict. A very good example, I think, is recently Pakistan, where there was a lot of talk during after the floods about international relief and stuff like that. But uh, I think the numbers currently say that tens of thousands of children are you know, facing malnutrition, 10 million people lacking access to safe uh, drinking water at this point of time. And I think this really sort of, you know, throws a very important question. We also some months ago had a very excellent article about the cholera outbreak in Malawi, which again, uh, not heard about too much. But what that shows is really the fact that uh, it's not just about controlling a disease. It's not just about firefighting. The fact that in order to prevent diseases like cholera, you need to build up a health system. You know, it, you, know you need to recruit people. You need to not... Uh, Take, go back to these same policies of austerity, which involve firing a large number of health workers. And it is the destruction of health systems in country after country, even not, not, not through conflict, even in countries where there's no conflict. Just economic policies have destroyed health systems to the extent that cholera has now risen again, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that uh, the case in Malawi is especially interesting because it, it chronicles how over the decades in this African country, there's been just a wrecking of uh, the health system, which has actually led to this disease coming up. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty, these seem very basic. And this is what we're talking about climate change as well. These The steps to address these issues at some level, at one level, seem very basic. They're very much there. But the fact that, you know, millions are being spent, we talk about SIPRI reports all the time, that billions are being spent on arms when the questions of hunger, when the questions of portable water are not addressed. Really, I think, 
and it, it it is essential that we talk more about these topics because uh, you know often in the flow of news these are the things that actually get missed out the fact that uh, we have a, a mortality rate of two of nearly two percent due to cholera globally across the world today. You know this question of what is news is so important when the news broke that there was going to be a new memoir from Britney Spears. Um, publishing houses around the world found it difficult to access paper because a lot of the paper was bought up by the major publishers that anticipated large sales for that book. Now, I have nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with her story. She has an important story to tell, but it tells you how imbalanced everything is. Who's watching Peru right now? Who watched it during the coup? Zoe was there on the ground for People's Dispatch, covered that coup. In fact, um, perhaps led the news reporting on that coup. Zoe, but who's looking at the coup now? Who's looking at the situation now? You better give us an update. Well, it continues to be a very um, pressing story, and that's why at People's Dispatch, we haven't stopped reporting it. Um, and really, I think today, it's it's the people on the ground in Peru who continue to share what's happening, who continue to, uh, who are on the streets, participating in these protests, they're the ones who are actually communicating these stories. And it's so important um, that they continue to do so. So the world actually knows what happens uh, is happening there. And we're coming up on the four month anniversary of this coup against uh, Pedro Castillo. And uh, sadly, the violence continues against protesters. People have not uh, given up. I think that uh, the government of Dina Bolvarte calculated that maybe if you continue to kill people, if you continue to repress in such horrific ways, firing lead pellets at people, um, you know, firing tear gas into people's homes, maybe uh, you'll you'll dissuade people from going out onto the streets. But I think uh, what Peru has showed us and what so many struggles across the world, what happens in so many of these struggles is that uh, actually people these leaders don't understand that people are motivated by so much more. And it's such a, it's a deeper aspiration to really change the system. And they're motivated by you know, decades of, of exclusion, of discrimination. And that's exactly what's at play in Peru. That's, it's, you know, the glass has just uh, tumbled over. Um, and so essentially this week, a, there have been fresh protests because um, a protester who was hit with 36 lead pellets um, during a protest in January at close range by police um, passed away a 22-year-old, a young man from the city of Cusco in the south of Peru. And once again, it has really enraged the people um, to see that, you know, the list of people who have been killed by this regime is at least 67 who have been killed by police and military in the context of these protests. Um, they continue to be uh, under attack. And really the, the government has shown no signs of listening to the demands of the people. And the demands have been extremely clear from day one um, that Pedro Castillo be released. Many are calling for his restitution as president, that Dina Boluarte resign, that there be a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution in the country, um, that con the Congress be closed. This is a Congress that has a over 90% um, disapproval rating. It's one of the lowest or the highest rates of uh, not approving of a uh, elected body. Um, and that many of the regional grievances, the uh, decades of exclusion of the communities in the South, the communities outside of Lima be addressed. And uh, the government has essentially stood firm. 
Uh, it has while Dina Boluarte was from the um, Free Peru Party and you know was the vice president with Pedro Castillo, she's done a complete um, shift, a 180, one could say, in her politics, complete alignment uh, with the ruling class in Peru, uh, the media apparatus, which we spoke about a lot um, when I was on the ground there, which is you know, one of the, probably one of the most intense sensationalist press that has no qualms about calling, freely calling ter uh, protests terrorists with no um, backing, calling them criminals. Um, this press has, you know, completely fallen in line with Daniel Boluarte, the far right, the center, all lining up behind her and, and supporting the fact that she stay in power um, despite the massive, massive protests that continue to be carried out across the country. Um, so it's unlikely that these protests are going to stop. People continue to be enraged. And now the demands for justice have only grown. The fact that four months have passed, um, that they are able to continue killing with impunity, that the government continues to say that these protesters died because they were committing criminal acts. This continues to be fuel for the fire. And I don't think that the people are going to stop until there's a clear solution, a political solution. A clear political solution in Peru, of course. Um, Zoe, you know, you're sitting in Argentina. You just need to look north and you'll see the fires burning in France, uh, a country with a great political crisis ongoing. People are on the streets just as they are in Argentina and other countries, motivated to some extent by the cost of living crisis, but not only. They are motivated also by the lack of faith in their governments. Something interesting that happens in many of the Andean countries, it looks like don't trust your vice president. Remember what happened to um, to, to Mr. Correa, whose, uh, whose successor, Lenin Moreno, went far to the right. And again, now we see this repeated in Peru. This is an Andean phenomena. We need to come up with some kind of index uh, to make sense of this. Well, old Anthony Blinken, fluent in French, made his way to two African countries, part of this U.S., um, you know, pressure campaign on Africa following Janet Yellen's previous uh, move. The uh, U.S. had sent ambassadors and others. Well, Mr. Blinken had a curtailed trip. He went to two countries. He went last week um, to Ethiopia. Tough, tough sell in Ethiopia, given the fact that the United States had taken a strong position against the Ethiopian government's war in the north uh, with the Tigrayan group there. Uh, that was a tough meeting. Much more welcoming meeting in Niamey, Niger, where he spent some time. I've just finished a piece for Globetrotter, which will be running, um, you know, uh, and it's called The Long Arm of Washington Extends into Africa Sahel. It's a very long arm because it's a distance from Washington to the Sahel, you know, thousands of kilometers. It's not a neighboring country, but there it is. The United States has this habit of extending its arm across the world. Well, it might come as a surprise to some people, and I've been reporting this for the last several years, that the U.S. is one of the world's largest um, drone bases in Agatez, Niger. Uh, also, the French have a very large uh, encampment around the uranium city of Arlit. Now, it's interesting. Niger has one of the largest yellow cake ur uranium reserves in the world, and yet it stands at 189 out of 191 countries in the Human Development Index. You know, it tells you a little bit about how the neo-colonial structures continue to reproduce themselves. Well, fortunately 
for the Nigerian uh, government. Fortunately for them, uh, they currently are still a quote-unquote democratic government. In other words, uh, the the prime minister has come to power. Um, you know, with uh, in a, sorry, the president has come to power through an election. And Mahmoud Bazoum, although he's facing a lot of criticism about corruption and so on, can still claim that he came to power through the ballot box. Well, this is what the United States tried to make a lot of, saying that, look, across the border in Burkina Faso and in Mali, the governments are military dictatorships. Happens to be the case that those military governments uh, are extremely popular in their countries. They, of course, inherit a kind of Thomas Sankara-esque uh, tradition of militaries in those countries. Nonetheless, United States tried to pledge money into Niger, $150 million of humanitarian aid, which is half the amount UNICEF has asked for the Sahel region's children's defense, uh, you know, in defense of children. 450-odd million was the UNICEF request. So the U.S., um, you know, give to Niger for humanitarian aid is one-third of what the UNICEF is asking for. It's extraordinarily low amount. Meanwhile, the U.S. has pressured Niger into a Millennium Challenge Corporation grant, including uh, with neighboring Benin. Uh, now, interestingly, this money has come into agriculture. And the sources that I talked to for this story told me quite directly that the U.S. government is using Millennium Challenge Corporation money, which is the U.S. government um, attempt to uh, contest the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. This MCC money is being used to upgrade agriculture and privatize it and deliver the work of small farmers to U.S.-based multinational agro-businesses. A very interesting development. You'll find that in the story that I have from Globetrotter. The long arm of Washington extends into Africa, Sahel. You're listening to Give the People What They Want. This is our 119th episode. Don't forget those selfies. We're still looking forward to seeing pictures of you watching our show. You can listen to us as a podcast where Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Really happy to be with you. See you next week. Yeah.